Welcome to the preaching podcast from the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. In 1 Timothy 3.15, it says that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Therefore, we believe it is our duty to hold fast and to hold forth the truth, which is the Word of God. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you will be encouraged by what you hear today. Galatians chapter 5, beginning verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Thank you. You may be seated. Again, we took time last week to define those terms, uh, the works of the flesh. And he goes on to say, They that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are sins that characterize people that are lost. If you want some, if you're, if you're taking notes or if you mark your Bible, one of the things I enjoy most about marking in my Bible, if you went through my Bibles, you'd probably find this, I really enjoy cross-referencing. Now, part of that's because I preach, and it's helpful to have in a margin where there's a, a text that's similar. But as we read Galatians 5, especially the end there, my mind especially goes to Romans chapter 6. Uh, the Bible says much about the idea of mortification of the flesh, that if we've been baptized into Christ, we've been baptized into His death. So Romans chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8 are good parallel chapters to read along with Galatians chapter 5. So Romans 6, 7, and 8. I believe every Christian needs to be extremely familiar with those three chapters and what it means to you to be saved, that your flesh, that's Romans chapter 7, cannot produce what is right and good. Romans 8, you and I must live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God who has sealed us under uh, the day of redemption, if we're going to live the victorious Christian life. And so uh, I would encourage you to, to put those, those references down, Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8 as well. When we get done here in, First, or in Galatians 5, it talks about the works of the flesh being manifest. In my mind, my mind goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where it tells us, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? It gives you a list of people and what is unrighteous. And it helps us get very clear in our minds a definition from God's point of view of what is unrighteous. So in a world that's trying to change the definition of righteousness and unrighteousness, the Spirit of God is explicitly clear on what is righteous in His sight and what is unrighteous. Another text that comes to my mind is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, where it's going to talk about not being partaker with the works of darkness. So we are now light in the Lord. These are all very similar texts where Paul is writing to New Testament believers about the distinction of their life now that they're saved. We, we use the Bible term separation. God has distinguished us from the world. What is it that primarily distinguishes us or separates us from the world we live in? Is it geographical distance? Or is it purity and holiness of life? That's what distinguishes us from the world we live in. Uh, the grace of God hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We, believers in Christ, should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And so, and that's Titus chapter uh, 2, uh, verses 11, 12, 13, so on. So the grace of God teaches us that now we're saved. God wants us to be very clear in defining the old life versus the new life. Now, as we come into this night, one of the things that gets our attention uh, is the distinction between, the Bible says, the works of the flesh, meaning the energetic effort that you put forward in your flesh can only produce this. But the fruit of the Spirit, how many of us understand fruit and work are two different words? 
they are, in, they're, they're communicating two different ideas. So I want to take just a moment. We've done this before, but I want us to think about fruit. Even from the beginning of creation, God talked about fruit. And that fruit contained the seed in itself. The fruit would contain, and you know of any fruit that's true. You, wanna, you want to reproduce an apple tree, get an apple, slice the apple, the fruit open. That's where you're going to find the seed. Dehydrate those seeds, plant them, you'll get, uh, uh, you'll, you'll get more fruit coming up. And so the fruit bear has the seed within itself. This, this concept goes forward. You know what? You and I are somebody's fruit. Someone sowed the word of God into our lives. We believed it, received it into our heart. God regenerated us by faith, saved us. And now we have the seed of the word of God. And we're to plant that in somebody else's life. We are, we are somebody's fruit and somebody ought to be our fruit. That's one aspect of fruit. The other part of the thing, the thing about fruit is not only does it contain the seed in itself, so the reproduction process of a plant is found in the fruit. So if you get a tree that's never fruitful, it's never going to reproduce itself. It can go through its entire life cycle and be an apple tree but never produce another apple tree. It's going to have to go. Here's what fruit is. It is the final product of a mature plant. You know, you have a baby apple tree. You don't expect fruit on an apple tree, if I remember correct, for at least a couple, maybe three years after you plant it. But the, the, the mark of perfection or maturity in a plant is fruit. So, for instance, I put potato plants in the ground, put potato seed in the ground. We're supposed to say seed potato, right? That's what we do. It's not potato seed. It's seed potato. All right, we put those in the ground. You get a shoot that comes up. You know what, though? I've had years, more than once, where I have nice, beautiful plants. They get to the point where they bloom, and my beloved creatures eat the blooms off of them, and I get no fruit or very little. Meaning I have these beautiful, huge potato plants, and as soon as the blooms come on, the deer come in and eat them up, and those beautiful potato plants are nice green plants to look at, and then they wither away, and I turn the dirt and either get no potatoes or two or three little scrawny things because they didn't finish their life cycle. Are you with me? You can't exist as a Christian without completing your process, bearing the fruit God wants you to bear. We're tonight looking at the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this is the other thing we would say. This is, if you would, the nature of the fruit we produce. Okay, so fruit contains the seed for reproduction. It's Christians who reproduce Christians through sowing the seed of God's word. Amen? Fruit is the final product of maturity in a, in a given living organism. But here's the other thing fruit is. Fruit is the revealer of the nature of the plant. You don't gather figs of thistles, Jesus said. Meaning, if you have a grape, you know you have a grapevine. If you have an apple, you found you an apple tree. The fruit reveals the nature of the plant. When you and I got, when we were born again, the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, we were made partakers of the divine nature, meaning God placed his nature in us. You know what reveals that nature? Our fruitfulness. When you and I bear the fruit we're going to look at tonight, it tells the kind of thing, the kind of, of the kind of individual we are. The works of the flesh are what we read about last week and studied last week. And by the way, the list for the works of the flesh is longer than the fruit of the Spirit. That's just the way the Lord wrote it up. I didn't. Uh, the negative has more than the positive. So we're going to look at the ninefold fruit of the Spirit tonight. And by the way, it do us well to say, is that present in my life? If we're not careful, we'll say, yep, there's some love in my life. Whew. How many of us could say, ah, but it should be more abundant in my life? And so then we're going to look at these fruits tonight. Uh, again, we could preach an entire series of messages on the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe someday we will. We have before. And there's a day that we do that. That's not my intent tonight. I want to just work through these and consider this ninefold fruit of the Spirit that what this does, it'd be like saying, that's an apple tree, <laughs> that's a pear tree, that's a Christian. <laughs> this is what reveals the nature of the Spirit of God in you. As he lives in your life, his life in you is evidenced by this fruit. And so then, let's dive in, start looking at these, give you some definitions. Some of these are very, fairly easy to define and don't need a lot of explanation, and then others perhaps a little more. So, the Bible says, again, Galatians 5.22, so in contrast to the works of the flesh, but, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and the first one is, Love. Now, if we were going to go and get a detailed definition, you know where we would go. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
to get a good definition of charity is what it's called in 1 Corinthians 13. I don't believe it should be love. I'm finicky on this one. It's the same root word in Greek, but in 1 Corinthians 13, charity suffereth long and is kind. I get irritated when I see signs everywhere, faith, hope, and love. I think, no, it's faith, hope, and charity. That's what the Bible says. And I may be a little too finicky because I understand it's a form of love. But the fact of the matter is, I've heard somebody say it this time, this way. Go read 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on charity, and put in place of the word charity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it works perfectly. Turn over, let's do it, shall we? We're not going to change the Bible. I want you to understand, God is what? God is love. When His love is manifest in our lives toward other people, it's called charity. Many people think charity is giving money to the poor, but you realize you could give all your goods to the poor and not have charity. That's what the Bible says. And so let's consider this fruit tonight. The fruit of the Spirit is love. God's love ministered and manifests through our lives to others as we see it in 1 Corinthians 13 is charity. By the way, it is a form of love. It's just, again, same, same underlying Greek word means the same thing. The word love, let me give you this definition. It is, as is so many times told to you, the word agape, and that love is affection or benevolence. Um, and it can, of course, refer, as used sometimes, to the feasts of charity and so forth. But it is affection or benevolence. And in the context of Scripture, this love is not earned or reciprocal. It, meaning, it's not be given because of some benefit that I'm receiving. It is given because it is given simply out of goodness. That's why God is love. We, we generally, if you look up the definition of love in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, it is inherently reciprocal among us as people. And that's how it is defined there. I love something because it is beautiful to me. Or I love something because it benefits me. God loves us because God is good. And we are to, we are to learn this kind of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It is to place a, 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 a level of value on someone. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, that's what we generally think charity is, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Now think about this. As I read the word charity, just think, would the, would the name of the Lord Jesus Christ appropriately fit here? Charity suffereth long. Could we say the Lord suffereth long and is kind? Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity, what if you said the Lord here? Never faileth. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Uh, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. It is an interesting, as you study charity, it is, again, like fruit. It is a mark of spiritual maturity. When I became a man, I put away Childish things. Children are marked by selfishness. That's just true. Children are marked by selfishness. It is natural for us to be a self-centered person. When a person, is pers uh, when a person is first born, everyone treats them like they're the center of the universe. We ooh and awe and drool and all this over that child so they think that they are the center of the universe, right? And then they get to be about two and they're not quite as much the center of the universe. And about the time they're three... If they're born into a family like theirs where there's a lot of competition, a lot of siblings, soon they find out they're not the center of the universe, right? That's just the truth. And if you don't find it out then, sooner or later you'll find it out. You know what? The world does not revolve around me. The longer we try to make that happen, the more miserable we make ourselves and others. Charity, if we could sum it up in a word, is selflessness. 
I am not living for the pleasing myself. I'm not living for promoting myself. I'm not even living to preserve myself. I'm living for someone else. First and foremost, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and that is love toward God. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love Him because He first loved us. We first learned to love God, and if we love God, we will keep His commandments. Look very quickly, if you would, at 1 John chapter 5. As we're on this fruit of the Spirit is love, it's going to be, I can't help but think it's one of the first ones mentioned because it so determines the rest of these. Do you know why you'd be willing to tell yourself no about something? Something that you enjoy, something you want, something that brings you pleasure, but you're going to say, but I won't do it anyway. Though it brings me pleasure, though I want to do it, though I want this to possess it, I'm going to say no to myself. What would compel somebody, if you had the power to give yourself what you want, what pleases you, but you'd say, I won't do it, what would compel you to do such a thing? The what of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ constraineth us. There are things we want. There are things that please us. There are things we may think would preserve our life, but the Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear it doesn't please Him. If we have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, you'll end up having the fruit of the Spirit, which is temperance. You know what temperance is? I will say no to myself because I love Him. I'll say no to myself because I love them. Love is primary here. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And so then, 1 John chapter 5, and we'll move on in a moment to the other fruit. 1 John chapter 5, I think this is a key text in understanding what love looks like. I was speaking to someone the other day. I have to give full disclosure. I've never read these books. Therefore, I can't recommend or non-recommend them. I'm familiar with who the author is. I've heard some things. But you hear people talk about the love languages, right? What do people do that you comprehend as loving you? Some people, when they're given a gift, they think that, that registers love. Some people, uh, the way you speak to them, a compliment. The Lord Jesus Christ has something that he says ministers to him and communicates to him, you love me. And what is that? Obedience. It's no wonder that obedience then is preached on so much to people who profess to be believers in Christ. Some get weary and say, I get tired of hearing about obedience. Well, that's how we tell the Lord we love him. If you love me, John 14, 15, keep my commandments. You, you know, it's amazing what we'll do. We'll say, Lord, I'll give you more money. Well, to obey is better than sacrifice and the hearken and the fat of rams. God wants us to obey him. That's how we tell him we love him. So 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God... And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. You love a father, you love his kids, right? Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. You know what? A mark of spiritual maturity is loving God enough to obey him. That's a mark of spiritual growth. That's fruit. When, we, when in our lives we say, you know what? I love this or I like this, but God saved me and I love him enough. A lot of people feel like when you get to place in your Christian life that you can say, you know what? God can do with me whatever he wants. I'll just obey him. That somehow we've reached some superior high mark when really that's just the fruit that every Christian ought to bear. And so what the Bible does in 1 John 5, why I wanted to go here, is it, it ties together obedience to the Lord and loving the brethren. Meaning, how can I know that I love the brethren? Because it's interesting to me, the Bible doesn't say, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we always feel marvelous about one another. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not naive enough to think that every time you come to church, you think, oh, I just love being around pastor. He's, a, he's just so wonderful. I, you know, I just feel warm fuzzies all over when I get around him. I doubt it, especially if I'm having a bad day. I might not make you feel warm at all. <laughs> so how do we love each other? By obeying the Heavenly Father. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. How? When we love God and keep his commandments. There's one litmus test. Do I love God? Well, am I obeying him? Here's the other test. Do I love God's children? How do you know if you love God's children? We're giving... Lots of money to each other. Well, maybe if that's what God says to do. You know how you know if you love God's children? Keep his commandments. That's it. How do I know if I love God's children? Oh, I can't stop thinking about them. They're just always on my mind. Well, no, no. Here's the test. I know I love God's children when I keep his commandments. That's the one test. 
So what does this have to do with the fruit of the Spirit? Everything. We're going to test tonight that we have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. The mark of that is keeping His commandments. And that's not just rigid obedience that has to do with the heart of obedience that says, if He says it, I'm going to retain it. I'm going to abide in Him and let His words abide in me. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, an affection for God, an affection for others out of that for God in so much that it results in obedience to God. That's how I love Him and that's how I love my brethren. Okay, and we could go on and on about love. We could preach here, we could preach weeks simply on the subject of love. We will not. One final verse on love. Romans chapter 12 verse 9 is a key verse on love. Let love be without dissimulation. Cleave to that which is good. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Uh, we, we never minister love by shifting values. Remember what we saw the other night, uh, Thursday night, keep mercy and judgment. They go hand in glove. And so uh, may God help us understand His love that we may love one another like we should. By the way, one of the primary marks of being a Christian is you love the brethren. You're going to have an affection for God's people. And, uh, and love, love the brethren enough to obey God. All right, so love. Second, fruit, second aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, if you would. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Love and then joy. And so the definition of the word joy from the Strong's Concordance is calm delight, gladness. Calm delight or gladness. When I looked up joy in the Webster's 1828 dictionary, it has to do with the delight that comes from succeeding at obtaining an objective. Now, let me ask you this. Let's say you only had one objective in life. You say, boy, that's being ambitious. But let's say my only objective was to obey God in every facet of my life, then what would bring you joy? If joy is obtaining an objective and having success in obtaining it, then what would bring you joy if your only objective in life is to live a life that is pleasing to God through obedience? Obeying Him. This is, you meet a joyful Christian, you'll find somebody that only has one objective in life. Because God will always enable you to obey Him. It's the one thing you can succeed at 100% of the time if you're saved. So, you don't know me. Well, that is if we're depending on the Spirit of God. <laughs> Amen? Has He called us to obedience? So He's called us to do something He doesn't enable us to do? No, no. If you and I find our joy in obeying God, guess what you'll have? Fullness of joy. John chapter 15. We'll go there in a few minutes as a, a cross-reference. John chapter 15. Jesus gives an entire section of verses on bearing fruit. And his whole point was about abiding in him. And then he says, and I'll paraphrase it for the moment, that we abide in his love by keeping his commandments. And he said, these things have I spoken unto you that your joy may be full. I believe this, my joy as as full as my obedience is complete to God. My joy as a Christian is as full as my obedience is complete to God. I'll say this, and there'll be no apology for it. You'll never have joy if there's areas of your life where you're not obeying God. As a Christian, the only thing that will give you joy is doing the will of God. As long as there's a question, you're, I'll, I'll say this. I believe this, and this is just an experiential. I won't preach this as authoritative from the Bible. I do believe the Bible confirms it so, but I will say this. The most miserable people on planet Earth are not lost people. They're saved people not doing God's will. And I could give you an illustration of that in the Old Testament. Genesis 19, there was a miserable man named Lot. The Bible says he was a righteous man, he was a just man. But boy, did he die a miserable man in a cave, isolated, defiled in sin because Lot did his own will instead of God's will. Amen? And so then joy. Tonight, I believe this. Joy is one of the most convicting agencies uh, agents, if I might, in the life of a Christian on the life of a non-Christian. It's something the world knows nothing about. They succeed in finance and it's never enough. They succeed in this area of life and they're failing in this one. So to meet somebody that has fullness of joy, the only way, the only way to have fullness of joy is to live a life of consecration to the Lord, to live a life that says, you know what, all that matters to me at the end of the day is am I obeying the Lord? And then you have joy. Uh, and so joy is, is that Calm delight. And so many, so many, so many of God's people do not have joy. So many are empty and deficient. 
And oh, I tell you what, if we could just get a hold of the fact that a life that says, you know what, I'm not going to determine how to live my life. I'm going to let God determine that. And then when he makes his will clear, just set forward doing it. And the Bible talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, them that oppose themselves. Many times we are our greatest opponent. We are the robbers of our own joy. We'd have joy if we'd just cooperate with the Lord. He knows what's best for us. You ever seen a child do that with their parent? The parent has a good plan for them. And the child in their immaturity cannot understand the wisdom of the parent's plan. And they buck and they kick. And the parent is like, if you would just do what you're told, you'd enjoy this. We do that with God. So let's go back to fruit number one, love. Love him enough to obey him, and then we'll have the joy. And again, we'll go to John 15 here in a minute as we walk through the process of fruitfulness. But for the moment, love, joy, and then thirdly is peace. Akin to joy, but not the same. Uh, peace has the idea uh, of quietness and rest and is again linked to prosperity. One of peace, quietness, rest. So especially the word quietness is attached to peace. So the soul being at ease. The soul being at ease. The Bible talks about in Psalm 37, uh, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be at ease. We're not to fret ourselves because of evildoers. It's not talking about checking our brains out, but knowing the Lord's in control. I'll tell you what peace is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ asleep on a pillow when the water is crashing into the boat. That's peace. That's peace that passes all understanding. Amen? And the Lord intends for us tonight to have peace, but let us re be reminded, these things are the fruit of the Spirit, meaning as the Spirit of God leads my life, this is the product of His leadership. Love, joy, peace, okay? All of those are internal, and they're really beneficial to the one who holds them. Love is obviously beneficial to those that we minister to, but joy is something that I obtain because of my walk with God. It's something that, that is a blessing to me and a rich, uh, it's, it, there, it, it is a rich that we, we hold, but now... It starts to transition here a little bit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, long-suffering. Okay, the word long-suffering means forbearance or fortitude or patience. Do you remember how 1 Corinthians 13 says that charity suffereth long? You see how all the other fruits flow out of the first one? Charity suffereth long and is kind. This has to do with being patient with people, patient with people. How many have ever noticed this in yourself? When it comes to your own spiritual development, there's always, well, I'm growing. You know, it's not hard to be patient with ourselves. We say something like this, I'm trying, I'm trying. But when someone else, maybe I'm the only one ever noticed this. Someone else is having the same exact difficulty I've had in my life. There's no room. You get it now. Come on. Huh? Isn't that amazing how that works? When that happens, and look, we're not talking about, we're not talking about tolerating sin we're not talking about being our partaker of other men's sins. But how many of you would say, just by uplifted hand, you have grown in your faith and in your love for God since the day you got saved? How many of you would say that has been a process? And how many of you say you're still in process? Yeah. God is constantly growing us. Long-suffering is to say, you know what? I'm going to be patient with someone else while God's working on them. Long-suffering has to do with being forbearing. You know what forbearance is? It's this. Your immaturity or your folly is making my life difficult. Something that you're doing makes my life difficult. How many of you think, <clears throat> now I understand you can't make things difficult for God. He has all power. But how many of you think we grieve him at times? How many of you think we move at times at the pace he would like for us to? How many of you have watched God deal with you about the same thing over and over and bring you back to the same place again, 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 again? The Lord's long-suffering with us. He really is. The Lord Jesus hasn't returned to this very day for one reason. The Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 makes that very clear. And so the point would be this tonight. When the Spirit of God is leading us, He's going to teach us to put up with a lot from other people. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? Well, I'm just not a very patient person. Well, I, you know, some people are more easygoing, right? But I'll be honest with you. When something is difficult for us, all of a sudden our patience naturally goes out the door. And this is where wrath and anger and strife and contention come in. 
But long-suffering does just that. It suffers long, meaning you're willing to bear... How many of you would have liked to be the Lord Jesus Christ teaching the disciples to follow you for three and a half years? You guys know what he had to put up with? Honestly. You think about this. The entire time, he's telling them things that right over their head. He's telling them, I've got to go and be crucified and rise from the dead. And they say, can I sit on your right hand and your left as soon as you establish the kingdom? Almost that fast. You'd want to scream. Did you not hear what I told you? But he didn't. He suffered long and is kind. Amen? Long-suffering. We'll move forward. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, gentleness. Uh, the word gentleness, the first word that is used to define gentleness is usefulness. I find that interesting. Usefulness, moral excellence in character or demeanor, gentleness, goodness, kindness. Now, again, we'll use the word goodness in just a moment. But gentleness has to do with our demeanor and our deportment toward others. I don't believe you can have gentleness without long-suffering. And this is one of those areas. If we're not long-suffering, gentleness goes out the window. I was thinking today about Proverbs chapter 15. I believe, I always get confused, 1 and 3. I believe it's verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Proverbs 15, 1. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Uh, gentleness says, because I love God and I'm going to obey him, then I'm going to be concerned more about the other guy than I am myself. Then what happens is if I'm walking in this spirit, I'm going to handle people differently as they make my life miserable than I would if I were walking in the flesh. If I'm in the flesh, I'm going to blow up. If I'm walking in the spirit, I'm ready to snap and say something I shouldn't. And the Lord's going to restrain me and say, now, you just bear this. And the soft answer turneth away wrath. This is not talking about being apologetic for truth. We need not exchange gentleness for mildness and not being bold, okay? But many times we think bold means being rude. No, it, it really can't mean that. It means being clear on the truth. How many you know there are certain truths, if you say them in the most calm and gentle voice, it's still going to stir the same response? Absolutely. You tell someone that believes their works are going to save them and get them to heaven, and, the gent and we should be gentle. Let me remind you what the Word of God says. The Bible says, not by works of righteousness which we have done. How many ever witnessed my in that very tone and they get mad at you? That hasn't, see, we can be bold. <laughs> we can be bold and be gentle at the same time. And it's, it's having the idea of, of being careful with how we deal with people. Being careful with how we handle people, not in selfishness and pride, but being useful, the idea of, uh, of our words being seasoned with salt and, uh, and this kind of thing. And so gentleness, being uh, careful in our dealings with others, moral excellence, kindness in our deportment. It has the idea of kindness, okay? Uh, and kindness is generated in actually caring about somebody. Amen? Truly and genuinely caring about somebody. So gentleness, then goodness. Goodness has more to do with the effect on someone, okay? So things are good or things are evil. Goodness has to do with conduct that is ultimately beneficial to someone else. Now with that in mind, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 speaks of the fruit of the Spirit here. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 9, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. You know what? Our lives should be a net benefit to those around us. They should be a benefit. Meaning, after we've been interacting with someone, they shouldn't leave and ha us having been a leech on them, but a source of grace. Okay? Goodness has to do with being beneficial toward someone else, being a source of benefit to someone. We should say something that turns their heart toward the Lord. We should... Say our words should be beneficial, our actions should be beneficial. And so even if God is using us as a source of conviction, that's a benefit to them by and by. And so then goodness has the idea of being virtuous or beneficent, uh, having a bene uh, being beneficial to someone, okay? That's the effect we have on them. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. We understand what faith is. It's believing God. 
The fruit of the Spirit is faith. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You know what the Holy Spirit of God is going to always be working in your heart to do? Believe what, what God says. He's going to constantly be reminding you, believe what I said. Believe what I said. And so then the fruit of the Spirit is faith. By the way, bearing this fruit requires faith. It requires faith. It is faith meaning persuasion uh, that what God says is truth. Okay, And then we come to the next, and that's meekness. So now the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. And the best way I know to describe meekness as we see it uh, described in Scripture, it is not effeminacy, as many would like to say. Many times Christ is portrayed as effeminate. No way. No way. Effeminacy, by the way, is a sin. We do understand that, right? For a man to be soft like a woman is sinful. So we're not talking about being effeminate. Meekness has the idea of softness of temper or mildness. It's gentleness in action, if you would, forbearance under injuries and provocations. I believe meekness would cause a person to be slow to anger, slow to wrath. Meekness would be this as well. How many have ever, you've heard of the shaken baby syndrome, right? I remember when we first had children, and when Braden was born, he cried a lot when he was first born. And I don't know why, but he did. He ended up having jaundice later and kept us up hours of the night. And I'm not bitter about it too much. But anyway, um, balding began then. And uh, anyway, no, just kidding. But I remember, I remember my wife and I discussing it. After he was born, we were already sleep deprived. She especially was. Well, she had been drugged uh, because it was a surgery. So I'm awake and I'm up changing his diaper in the night. And I, I kid you not, it's 1.30 in the morning. I'm just going to sleep. And he started crying. And I'd get up and I'd rock and get him to sleep. 35 minutes later, calm, I'm going to sleep. And he'd start crying. We did this for hours and I remember thinking how frustrating it was. And I thought, there's never an excuse for shaking a child. But I can understand how someone who wasn't where they need to be in their mind would do that. Use their strength to destroy a little one. Why? Because that little one's making my life miserable right now. Meekness says, I will restrain my strength in order not to damage another person. Sometimes we can come across and say, I believe as Christians, listen, we have... We have knowledge of God's word that the unsaved do not have. Do you realize we don't have that knowledge in order to beat somebody over the head with it? I believe we have to be careful. You may memorize a lot of scripture, may memorize a lot of scripture. How many of us have ever been guilty of this? We flood someone with scripture not to help them, but to show them I'm more spiritual than you. I know more scripture than you do. Well, pastor, I've never done that. Well, I'm happy for you. <laughs> knowledge puffeth up, but charity... Edifieth. Meekness is the idea of restrained strength in order. It's not weakness. Meekness and weakness are not the same. Meekness is restraining one's strength in order to minister someone that is weaker than us. And we need to have that. Mature Christians especially must get a hold of meekness. Young people, you need to be thinking. There are people behind you watching you. You may have power to do something that doesn't mean you need to do it. You may hurt somebody else by your decisions and your actions. And so, and I'm not talking about physical power so much as mental capacity or uh, intellectual ability. We need, to, we need to have forbearance and especially under injuries and provocations. And so it has the idea of meekness is so interwoven with humility that they're inseparable. Uh, Webster's 1828 defines it this way. Humility, resignation, submission to the divine will without murmuring or peevishness it is to be opposed to pride, arrogance, and refractoriness, if that's a word we might use. So we're not going to be refractory, okay? We're not going to, we're going to pay back. We're going to restrain, okay? Uh, and then, of course, this all requires what? The last one, <laughs> temperance. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. I can see that love and temperance are bookends. Because I love God, I'm going to behave in such a manner when the Spirit of God is running your life, guess what? This is, what's, this is what comes out. Well, let's just walk in the flesh. When I read the last list and then I read this list, it tells me who ought to be running the show. And by the way, when these things start to subside, we get an idea. When all of a sudden I'm hot-tempered and I'm quick-tempered, you know, that ought to be the first signal. I need to go get along with the Lord. When, when, when temperance, you know what temperance, we use the word self-control, but that's, that's, not, that's not the best term. 
it is the ability, you know, what, what, is the, what is the requirement of being a disciple? We're to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. The Spirit of God will teach us to say no to ourselves. You know what the flesh wants? Say yes. You want that? It's appealing to you? Do it. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, you and I learn to say no. And not just no because, okay, what rule says I can't? That is, that is, I'm going to tell you, that is, that is a sign of a very immature Christian. Show me the verse, the Bible verse that says I can't do it because I want to. That's not in the right spirit. That's not in the right frame of thinking. My thinking is to be, how I many understand this? The Bible, Paul, on more than one occasion, says all things are lawful unto me. I mean, there are things I'm allowed to do, but all things are not expedient, meaning I'll not accomplish my purpose if I do them. He gives an illustration. You can eat meat, but then he goes on to say, but if meat is offered in the idol's temple and someone tells you that it is, then don't eat it, meaning say no to yourself. Well, well but what if it's a half-inch ribeye that's grilled to perfection? Say no anyway. You'd be better skip the meal than eat it and encourage idolatry in that other man's conscience. Amen? That takes temperance. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Paul says, Know ye not that they which run a race run all, but one received the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the masteries is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I do what? Keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. He said, there are things that I could do, but I don't let my body do because I want to hear well done from my Savior. The love of Christ did what to Paul? It constrained him, meaning I know heaven forbid in this modern day so-called Christianity, Christ's love mean he had some restrictions in his life but they were not opposed, imposed on him against his will, but according to his will. He was more than willing to say no to self so he could say yes to Christ. That is not someone twisting your arm and making you do something you don't want to. It is you wanting to do something so bad you'll say no to yourself in order to do something greater, and that is serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is never going to just say, go live however you want. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Temperance. Temperance. We have an entire culture that bristles if you tell them anything that they want to do is wrong authoritatively. Well, now we're Christians. You can't say anything's wrong. All things are lawful to me. Really? You can go murder your wife and that's lawful? Not if you're saved. <laughs> Amen? The point tonight would be this. When the Spirit of God is in control, somebody will say something like this. Let me just try to preach for a minute about one of the dangers of the charismatic movement. They'll say one of the marks of the move of the Spirit of God is you lose control of yourself. You may be rolling on the floor or laughing uncontrollably or all of a sudden you start speaking in a, a language that you never knew before and no one else understands either, but you just can't help it. And line up with that book. Someone says, I got beside myself and, you know, I just couldn't stop talking. The fruit of the Spirit is temperance, meaning I, I can, under the direction of the Spirit, say no to self because of love for the Lord. And so... The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Then he goes on to say this, against such, there's no law. If you're following the Spirit, you won't break anybody's law, including God's. And you don't have to have a law to restrain your flesh because the flesh, when you're under the law, is what's ruling. But when you're under the Spirit, He's leading and He'll never lead you to break God's law. There are those today who are committing adultery and say, well, I'm under grace. No, you're not. You're under the law, and you're condemned. When you're under grace, you have liberty to quit living that way. Amen? The grace of God is not to empower us to sin. It empowers us to do right. And there's no law against these things. How many have ever found a law against loving people? Generally, God's way loving people. You know, there's a law that says, thou shalt not stop and put your gas in another man's tank. No, there's a law that says you can't take his out of his and put in yours. But if you want to put yours in his, you're more than welcome to. <laughs> right? And if there is such a law, it's a stupid law. <laughs> All right? Not God's law. God's law never tells you you can't do that. And so then, the fruit of the Spirit is all of these things. Now, let's conclude. I want to go ahead and hit these last few verses. We may visit back to these next week. We'll see how the Lord leads. The Bible says in these final few verses, uh, verse 24 
And they that are Christ, so when you belong to Christ, you've been purchased with his blood, you're bought by him. They that are Christ have done what with the flesh? Crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. One of the first things the Lord has to lead us when we belong to him is to learn to put the flesh and its impulses and desires to death. That's what Romans 6 is all about. If we are buried with him in baptism, we are buried into his death. How many of you think what he means here is if you get saved, you've got to get hung on a cross and brutally tortured to death? No, it's figurative language. You've crucified the flesh. You realize the Christian life is a crucified life. It's not trying to figure out how to justify following the flesh. It's saying the flesh has been crucified with Christ. That nature in me that produces adultery and fornication and witchcraft and hatred and variance and wrath and emulations and strife is not to be nursed by me. It's to be taken back to the cross and say, that's why Christ died and that's why I needed him as a Savior. You know what? The cross not only buys your pardon from God's wrath, it gives you victory over sin. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ that your old man is crucified. It's what Paul means exactly in Galatians 2.20. He says, when I, I am crucified with Christ, meaning the Paul that persecuted people in pride, the Paul that gloried in his flesh, the Paul that thought he was better, the Saul that thought he was better than everyone else because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He hated Christians. He persecuted Christians. He blasphemed God's name. When I realized Jesus Christ truly died for my sins, that man went on the cross. Hear me tonight. If you're saved, the old nature has no right to govern your life. Crucified means dead. Not how can I implement some things in my life that are fleshly. No, that's past. Paul said, I die daily. What do you think he meant? That old flesh was taken back to the cross every day and said, you are dead the day I got saved. I'm a new creature, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. You know what carnality is? It's when you resurrect the flesh as a Christian. You say, you know what? I'm going to let the flesh. I hear Christians at times say, well, I just got in the flesh. That's wicked. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. But Romans tells us. And so tonight, they that are Christ have done what? Crucify the flesh. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. That means in Christ, he was dead to the, the pull of sin. He was dead to the world. He said, I'm crucified to the world, and, and the world is crucified to me. By the cross of Christ, meaning the world no longer has its pull on me, and I no longer am precious to this world. They've written me off as a fool and I've written the world off as a waste of life and time. I'm living for Christ. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. There's so much going on today, so-called the name of Christianity that is promoting lust and justifying it through some false teaching. No, 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 no. When you and I got saved, that came to an end. The cross of Christ ends our it ends our relationship with this world. It breaks our, the control of the flesh. And now I am liberated through the death of Christ and my death with him to live a life that's right and good in the sight of God. That ought to be a joyful thing. Amen? For the child of God. So they that are Christ, we're talking about some clarifying precepts here in the end of this, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. Verse 25, if we live in the spirit, let us also Walk in the Spirit. Many times in the New Testament, these two concepts are side by side. If we live in the Spirit, it talks about when you were regenerated, when you got saved. So if you were saved by the Holy Spirit of God giving you life, then live by the Holy Spirit of God leading your life. If you trusted Him enough to give you eternal life, trust Him enough to lead you through this life. Look at Colossians chapter 2 very quickly if you would. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I was going the wrong way. Colossians chapter 2. You're probably familiar with these verses. We quoted part of these earlier today. But the Bible says in Colossians 2, verse 6, As ye therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. There's that same concept again. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. How many times have people gotten saved? They've come to a saving faith in Christ, but that ended practically. They're listening to the governing work of the Spirit of God and leadership in their life. You know what? If, if, if the Bible 
is trustworthy enough to settle your eternity. It's trustworthy enough to tell you how to live until you get to heaven. Amen? If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Very simple concept. That's what Paul's saying. Look, I came and preached the gospel to you while you were in your wicked Gentile sins and you believed and trusted that the Spirit of God would impart life to you based on the promises of God. Now trust Him enough to lead you through life. And so then... Uh, there's that clarifying precept. First, he's dealing with their possession. They belong to Christ. They're crucified. Their possession and their position. You belong to Christ. You're dead to that old flesh. You've crucified it with affections and lusts. Verse 25 has to do with our practice. If we live in the Spirit, that's our position, let us also walk in the Spirit. That's our practice. By the way, you can divide so many of the New Testament books right in half, just that way. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 deals with your position. You're seated in the heavenlies. You're in Christ. You've been made righteous. Therefore, love your wife, love your husband, obey your husband, love your children, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, obey your masters. Masters, be kind to your servants. You realize Ephesians 1 through 3 is position. Ephesians 4 through 6 is practice. You know what happens? If Satan can't keep you from having the right position, he wants to keep you from having the right practice. If you've been born again, then live like a born again person. Not chasing affections and lust, chasing the mind of God in the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God, okay? And so then that deals with our possession, verse 24, our practice in verse 25, and then finally our purpose in verse 26. Let us not be desirous of vainglory. Let us not be desirous of vainglory. Philippians 2, 3 says the same thing. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. You know what vainglory is? What can I make part of my life that proves I'm better than you? Now, I know people would never use spiritual things to do that. We would never use the gifts of God in a vainglorious way, would we? Vainglory has the idea of glory for self that accomplishes no good purpose. Vain means empty, empty. So if I can dress better than you, and in my mind that's what makes me better than you, and I do that in order to say I'm better than you because I dress nicer than you, that's vainglory. If I think what makes me better than you is quoting more Bible verses, so I quote more Bible verses, that's vainglory. You know, it's natural for us to want to try to prove we're better than somebody else. But it's still wicked. What's spiritual is to say, no, no. Paul said, let us not be desirous. You know what Paul understood about the doctrine the Galatians were getting a hold of? Well, we Galatians are the true Christians. All of our children are circumcised. Well, pin a feather on your cap. He knew exactly what this was about, didn't he? They had received a doctrine that made them seem... Look, I'm going to be very careful when I say this. I believe Christians need standards in your life, if we can use that term, so that we can stay on track for the Lord. But the moment our standards are about proving we're, more, we're better than the next guy, well, we do this, we do that. Look, you know where I stand on the King James Bible. Amen? But if we start pasting all over our foreheads, and all over the everything else, King James only, and that's and we are. Don't misunderstand me, please. But the moment that becomes something that's pompous and proud, that is, I'm going to tout that to prove I'm better than you. Or on the other side of that, well, oh, you wretched KJVOs. Don't you think God gets upset at all this nonsense? His word is true. It's still true, and that's why we stand where we do. But we stand where we do, not in order to put us in a, more superior, in a superior position to someone else to say we're of more value than you, but to put us in a position to better serve God's purposes. Our positions are about ability to do God's will. I want to be able to preach with conviction that doesn't leave people doubting, but certain that God told the truth. That's why I stand where I do in the Bible but not so I can say so that I'm superior to that one or that one, and that becomes the place. If we hold our position for the purpose of vainglory, it is all of a sudden being misused. Paul said, let us not be desirous of vainglory. By the way, anyone, for any reason that goes back to the law, there's vainglory in it. We are done living under the law. The law is good it has truth for us, admonition for us, but it is not a code by which we live. We have something better. We have the author of the law to govern our every step. That's a better governance, wouldn't you say? That we have his voice to constantly say, not only is that the wrong action, son, that's the wrong attitude. The Spirit of God is far better than you and I in our own fleshly mind trying to figure out how to put in God's law and not being able to do it. 
And so then this is not advocating not being righteous. It is, Paul says, let's deal with the purpose behind what you're doing. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Provoking one another, envying one another. If you've been saved for any length of time and God's led you through the processes of growth, this should resonate. How many have ever had God implement something in your life and no sooner does he implement it and you notice someone else hasn't got it implemented in their life yet? Well, you and I need to have a powwow about brother so-and-so who hasn't got that implemented yet because obviously is not as spiritual as me. Isn't that a wrong attitude? Now, don't misunderstand me tonight. When people haven't implemented things they should, they need to. And if they get to be a stinker about it and are divisive about it, the Bible says, them that are weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations. I believe we can walk a straight and narrow path with a straight and narrow attitude. Not narrow, not like I despise. I mean keeping a right heart toward God and a right heart toward man while doing what's right in the sight of God. So Paul says, look, let's deal with your purpose. Why are you getting caught up in these things? Let us not be desirous of vainglory. He's going to deal in a few minutes how you help somebody that's in sin, somebody that's been overtaken with a fault. Men fail, but if, if, how many of you have ever know this? When I have envy in my heart, I'm going to delight at your fall. Have you ever seen somebody mess up and feel delight kick up inside of you? That's a bad thing. Very quickly, the Holy Spirit of God is going to put his finger on that. Say, you realize how you just felt delight at that person's fall? Yours is next, unless you get that fixed. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. We'll stop there tonight. He deals in finality in this chapter with their possession. They that are Christ, you belong to Christ. You've crucified the flesh with the affection and lust. That's the mark of someone who belongs to Christ. If Christ owns you, there's no room for the flesh to be active and controlling in your life. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Let me just end on this note. We'll use another. And the, by the way, they were getting caught up in things that no Christian even needed to do. We all ought to be involved in giving to missions. But you know what? We've got to guard our heart even against in that over, well, we give more than. Comparing ourselves among ourselves, we are not wise. And when we start doing that, vainglory crops up. Let me give you some closing verses you might want to note for your own personal study. We'll not go through them tonight. But you think about the process of fruitfulness. It is outlined in Scripture. It starts when we look in Luke 8 or Matthew 13. There has to be a planting. It starts with the planting of the seed of God's Word in your heart. That's where fruitfulness begins. And 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9, Paul says, I have sown Apollos water, but God gave the increase. You're God's building. You're God's husbandry. You're God's building. So this matter of bearing the fruit of the Spirit starts with being born again, with planting of the seed of God's Word in your heart. And then the Bible says it takes patience for that fruit, meaning there is a process between the planting and the fruit bearing. There's a process between when you got saved and when the love and the joy and the peace and those things are going to come out of your life. But those, Matthew 13, Luke 8 talks about with patience they bring forth some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, meaning it's going to take a process of time for this fruit to be in your life and manifest. That patience is dealt with in John 15 when he uses the word abide. That's a, that is a word that entails time. Don't, don't get impatient with the word of God. Don't reject God's word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. So John 15, 1 through 11 deals with the, the fruit bearing requires a partnership between me and Christ. His word is received and continually received and kept in my heart instead of rejected. Ephesians 4.30 talks about not grieving the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, quench not the Spirit. There is a relationship between me and the Holy Spirit of God. By faith I received Him, but now as in partnership with Him, as He ministers His Word and applies it to my life, I must neither quench or grieve Him, but patiently receive His Word. May I say this, the moment you reject the application of God's Word to your life is the moment you stop bearing fruit. The process of fruit bearing stops the moment I say, I know God said that, but that's got no bearing on the way I live my life. Then it stops. I quit walking in the Spirit at that moment. So this patience is seen in our partnership, the vine and the branch, okay? Then in that partnership, there's a purging. There are times things grow out of our lives, and the Word of God says, nope, I'm going to trim that away from your life. I'm going to trim, 
you stay in your Bible, it's going to cut things out of your life. Attitudes, actions, thoughts, words, decisions, okay? And then finally, there's productivity. There's a planting, there's patience. That means it's a process of partnership and purging that results in productivity, the fruit of the Spirit born in my life. And this process is a continuing, ongoing process that he repeats until there's fruit, more fruit, much fruit, fruit that remains. Amen? Let's stand through.